Hello and welcome to episode 13 of my Leaders of the American Civil War podcast. In this episode, we will discuss James Longstreet and the Maryland campaign through Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville. I had intended to cover a bit more of Longstreet's life in this episode, but family and personal events plus work schedules have conspired to slow me down a bit. I work in the supply chain industry, and needless to say, events of the world today are making my life interesting, as I'm sure they are for you as well. So to catch up where we left off, second Manassas. Yes, Lee and Longstreet had utterly routed Pope's Union Army, which, like McDowell's army the year before, didn't stop running until they were well within the safe confines of the Washington defensive perimeter. So this takes us to the Battle of uh, Antietam, or more specifically, the Maryland Campaign. So as a consequence of the victory at Second Manassas, the path was opened for the rebels to invade the state of Maryland. Quote, The present seems to be the most propitious time since the commencement of the war for the Confederate Army to enter Maryland, unquote. Lee informed Jefferson Davis on September 2, 1862. Longstreet supported the plan. Quote, The situation called for action, and there was but one opening across the Potomac, unquote. His men crossed into Maryland on September 3rd and arrived in Frederick the following day, beginning the Maryland campaign. Lee's army had about 55,000 men and was met by McClellan's army of about 87,000 men. Now, McClellan had been given back control of or command of the Army of the Potomac after having been sacked following the Peninsula debacle. Uh, He also now had command of John Pope's former Army of Virginia, given given to him by a reluctant Abraham Lincoln on September 2nd after Pope's debacle uh, at Second Manassas. Now, while the Confederates were en route to Frederick, Maryland, Lee decided to capture the Federal garrison at Harper's Ferry, which at the time was the farthest eastern tip of western Virginia, located on the confluence of the Shenandoah and Potomac Rivers. Lee believed this was necessary to eliminate the threat to the rebels' rear uh, while they were invading Maryland, So he divided his army during the passage into Maryland to do this. Longstreet did not agree due to the risk of splitting the army in enemy enemy territory, but Lee did, after all, send Stonewall Jackson to do this. Splitting up the army would have implications for Lee later in our discussion. Now, during his march into Maryland, the Confederate soldiers' poor supply situation and hunger was clear to all by their appearance and by their straggling along the way. It's believed that Lee lost fifteen to 20,000 soldiers to straggling because of the poor supply situation and because of the rapid pace of the march as they made their way to Maryland. The pace became much more rapid for reasons we'll discuss right now. While the Confederates were making their way to Maryland, a copy of Lee's plans called Special Orders 191 was lost by a rebel courier and fell into Union hands. This discovery gave Union General McClellan one of the greatest intelligence coups in American history. When he read it, McClellan, waving a copy, vowed, quote, Here is a paper with which, if I cannot whip Bobby Lee, I will be willing to go home, unquote. However, inexplicably, he stood idle with his army, with this incredible information that Lee did not suspect he had, for the next 18 hours. 
This, of course, allowed Lee's army to escape destruction because he was in a very vulnerable state with immense straggling and also had been split into two separate parts due to Lee's decision to capture Harper's Ferry. So McClellan's army did finally move into action and engage the rebels in a sharp fight in the mountain passes of South Mountain, but Lee's army fought off the rebels and decided to fall back and make their Alamo last stand at Sharpsburg, Maryland. The fast pace of the march and the skirmishing along the way, combined with the poor supply situation, cost Lee thousands more precious soldiers he could have used at Sharpsburg. Just a little anecdote. When they arrived at Sharpsburg, Maryland on September 16th, Longstreet and D.H. Hill established their headquarters at the stone and log farmhouse of Henry and Elizabeth Piper. Located in a swale approximately 500 yards south of the sunken road, the Pipers and their children farmed 231 acres of land and welcomed the two generals and their staffs. Elizabeth Piper and her daughters prepared dinner for their guests and offered them home-brewed wine with their meal. Believing it might be poisoned, Longstreet declined until Hill drank a glass, and then he said, Ladies, I will thank you for some of that wine. The two generals and their aides slept in the family's orchard nearby afterwards. So the first two Union divisions arrived the afternoon of September 15th, and the bulk of the remainder of the army late that evening, although an immediate Union attack on the morning of the 16th would have had an overwhelming advantage in numbers, McClellan's trademark caution caused him to delay his attack for a day. This gave the Confederates more time to prepare defensive positions and allowed Longstreet's and Jackson's Corps, minus A.P. Hill's division, to arrive from Harper's Ferry. Now in Sharpsburg, Maryland, Lee's Confederates literally had their backs against the wall that wall being the Potomac River, with only one crossing, that being Butler's Ford. The two armies faced each other with the Confederates facing east and the Federals facing west. The Confederates were in two wings, commanded by Stonewall Jackson and James Longstreet, respectively. Uh, uh, Jackson's wing was on the northern sector, or the left, anchored on the Potomac River at the northernmost point. And Longstreet's wing was on the south, or the right flank, anchored on the Antietam Creek on uh, its southernmost point. This line was about four miles long. Lee was outnumbered about two to one, and part of his army under A.P. Hill was still at Harper's Ferry. His army could only fight for their lives and and defend their position. Now, as the battle progressed, Lee was able to shift units back and forth between his two wings using interior lines which was made possible because the Union attacks were not coordinated to maximize effect. Uh, This was because George B. McClellan was the Union commander. Indeed, McClellan's command uh, plans were ill-coordinated and were executed poorly. He issued to each of his subordinate commanders only the orders for his own corps, but not general, general orders describing the entire battle plan. The terrain of the battlefield also made it difficult for these commanders to monitor events outside of their own sectors. Moreover, McClellan's headquarters were more than a mile in the rear. This made it difficult for him to control the separate corps. This is why the battle progressed as essentially three separate, mostly uncoordinated battles. Uh, Morning on the northern end of the battlefield, midday in the center, and then afternoon in the south. This lack of coordination of McClellan's forces almost completely nullified the two-to-one advantage the Union enjoyed. 
The battle exploded about 6 a.m. on Wednesday, September 17th, amid a dissipating fog when Fighting Joe Hooker's Federals charged southward along the axis of the Hagerstown Turnpike. Before them were two divisions of Jackson's and Hood's brigades. From the beginning of the combat, the land was seared, consuming unharvested crops and soldiers in both armies. Attacks crumbled before flaming musketry and thunderous artillery fire. The fury embraced Miller's cornfield, the East Woods, the West Woods, and the plateau where the whitewashed brick church of the pacifist German Baptist Brethren or Dunkers stood. When the struggle for the sunken road began, Longstreet stationed himself on the Piper Farm, most likely in or near the orchard where he spent the night. According to Major Sorrell, Longstreet's eyes were everywhere, directing units to areas of battle where they were needed most, and in many cases staving off disaster just in the nick of time. Longstreet's troops were the ones defending the sunken road, or the bloody lane as it was otherwise known. Needless to say, it was an absolute bloodbath, with both sides feeding in more units as the other side fell back and regrouped. Somehow, Longstreet's Confederates held the ground in the end. A Confederate captain claimed simply that the general was, quote, one of the bravest men I ever saw on the field of battle, unquote. It was about this point the Union fire all but knocked out one of Longstreet's artillery batteries. Longstreet and his staff hurried forward with aides replacing the fallen artillerists. Longstreet sat calmly on his horse, chewing on a cigar, holding the reins of his officers' mounts, and ordering charges of canister. Late in the day, as the fighting progressed to the south of Sharpsburg, Union General Burnside had finally crossed his namesake bridge and Snavely's Ford, uh, and was moving around the weakened Confederate right flank to cut off Lee's army's uh, last escape route across the Potomac River at Butler's Ford. At 3 p.m., Burnside moved west with over 8,000 fresh troops into position and attacked. However, at 3.30 p.m., A.P. Hill's division finally arrived from Harper's Ferry and staged a surprise counterattack. Hill's veterans had marched 17 miles in eight hours, a grueling pace, and reversed the tide of battle in an instant. They shoved the enemy back to the hills above Antietam Creek. The firing subsided and then ended. The, the, quote, long, exciting, amazing day of terrible battle, unquote, in the words of a Confederate, was done. September 17, 1862, would end as the bloodiest uh, day in American history with more than 22,700 total casualties. Following the battle, when Lee saw Longstreet walk into him, the army commander walked forward, grasped his subordinate's hand, and said, quote, Ah, here is Longstreet. Here's my old war horse. Let us hear what he has to say, unquote. The two generals then talked quietly with each other. Jeffrey Wirt, McClellan, quote, never realized the metal that was in the Grand Army of the Potomac, unquote. Consequently, the, the Confederates repulsed one uncoordinated assault after another and won a tactical victory. Lee's decision to fight and then retreat, however, gave the Northern administration a political victory. 
the ultimate meeting of Sharpsburg and Antietam came not from within either army, but from Abraham Lincoln. Five days after the battle, on September 22nd, the Union president issued the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. The document sparked heated debate and controversy, but its message would reshape the struggle. Now the war was about the cause of freedom. Now after Antietam, Lee recommended Longstreet and Jackson for the position of lieutenant general. His endorsement for Longstreet was without reservation. Jefferson Davis forwarded the two generals' names to the Confederate Senate, and both were appointed. Longstreet to the rank from October 9th and Jackson from October 10th, which made Longstreet the senior subordinate officer in the Army. Then, after an Army reorganization, which took about a month, Longstreet's 1st Corps consisted of five divisions comprised of 21 brigades and 24 artillery batteries, approximately 41,000 troops in all, once the Army was back up to full strength. No addition to the 1st Corps pleased Longstreet's uh, opinion more, however, than the appointment of Lieutenant Colonel Porter Alexander, whom we discussed in uh, Episode 5, to the command of Stephen Dill Lee's artillery battery on Lee's promotion to brigadier and his assignment to, uh, to Mississippi. Now we're going to discuss the Fredericksburg uh, campaign in December of 1862. Fredericksburg was a stunning defeat of the Union Army, commanded for the moment by General Ambrose Burnside, a rather reluctant commander. Uh, Burnside had accepted the command of the Army of the Potomac once McClellan was sacked once and for all by Abraham Lincoln, but Burnside did not feel he was up to the job, and he showed it. Unlike McClellan, Burnside was willing to use his army aggressively in the attack, However, his attacks were poorly coordinated and concentrated mostly on the most well-defended portion of the battlefield at Fredericksburg. And this position uh, Longstreet occupied at Marie's Heights, which was already an almost impregnable position. However, he was not satisfied with this, and in the days before the battle, he ordered trenches, abatis, and field works to be constructed. Perhaps the slaughter at Sharpsburg, where no works had been built by the rebels, had convinced him to do this. For Lee's army, Longstreet's efforts were a tactical innovation and a model for the future. During one of his inspections, Longstreet, accompanied by Alexander, suggested to the artillery officer that additional guns should be placed on Marie's Heights. Turning to Longstreet, Alexander is said to have remarked, quote, General, we cover that ground now so well that we will comb it as with a fine-tooth comb. A chicken could not live on the field when we open on it, unquote. Alexander would later admit that he didn't remember saying this, but now it's one of the most repeated quotes of the war. Burnside would now inexplicably send wave after wave of federal regiments to assail Longstreet's position at Marie's Heights, and the results were the same each time. Porter Alexander later admitted, quote, I never conceived for a moment that Burnside would make his main attack right where we were the strongest, at Marie's Hill, unquote. In the end, Burnside's Union losses in terms of personnel were staggering, nearly 13,000. The Confederates lost were less than half that number, and mainly in Jackson's sector on the south. Burnside was a reluctant commander attacking an impregnable position 
of breastworks and defenses that Longstreet's men had pioneered during this battle. In later battles, the Union Army would make use of similar defensive tactics, for example, at the Battle of Franklin, which would prove equally impregnable. After Fredericksburg, Longstreet issued congratulatory orders to his corps, recommending them for, quote, the the remarkable firmness with which they defended Maurice Hill, unquote. Lee turned to Longstreet and said, quote, it is well that war is so terrible, we should grow too fond of it, unquote. Burnside was demoted after Fredericksburg to command the Army of the Ohio and replaced by General Joseph Hooker, or Fighting Joe. Uh, Burnside and Longstreet would again meet in Knoxville, Tennessee about a year later, and the result would be very different for Longstreet, perhaps a bit of foreshadowing. Longstreet did not participate in the next big showdown at Chancellorsville, Virginia, in April and May of 1863. Instead, he was sent off on a mission to draw much-needed supplies from southeastern Virginia and North Carolina, which his troops did with much success. While in North Carolina, Lee or Longstreet was introduced to the spy Harrison, who he paid in U.S. greenbacks for information helpful to his operations. A few months later, in June of 1863, Harrison would later provide Longstreet with information that the Union Army was crossing the Potomac River and headed for their mighty showdown in Gettysburg. Meanwhile, at Chancellorsville, Fighting Joe Hooker had executed a brilliant flanking maneuver across the Rappahannock River that placed his army in position to defeat Lee's army in detail. This is because Lee's army was split in three parts and Longstreet's corps wasn't even present at the time to provide support. However, in one of the most audacious moves of the war, Confederate Commander Lee sent Stonewall Jackson's corps around the unprotected right flank of the Union Army, which was held by Oliver Otis Howard's 11th Corps. The resulting rout and near destruction of Howard's corps caused Fighting Joe Hooker to lose his nerve completely. He would eventually recross the Rappahannock River back towards Washington and give up the fight. Now, during this time, Longstreet would begin lobbying for a move to the Western theater of the war. Longstreet had developed a close relationship with Confederate Senator Louis Wigfall, a flamboyant and combative figure who was on the Military Affairs Committee of the, uh, of the Confederate Senate. Longstreet would correspond with Wigfall and with other R- Richmond politicians and press his case for a transfer to the Western Theater because he believed such a move offered him a shot at command of an entire army. Longstreet respected and loved Robert E. Lee. However, he harbored ambitions for his own army command, and he knew this would never happen in the Eastern Theater. Also, he was keenly aware that Confederate General Braxton Bragg, who commanded the Army of Tennessee in the West, was profoundly unpopular with his subordinates, as well as the politicians in Richmond. With a transfer to the West, he saw his chances for taking over Bragg's command uh, when the time came pretty good. This would never happen, of course, for Longstreet, but he would get his chance to go west after Gettysburg when he would join Braxton Bragg for perhaps his greatest tactical performance of the war at Chickamauga. However, things did not go exactly for him as he had planned, as we will discuss in the next episode. Now join me for episode 14, in which we will discuss Chickamauga, Knoxville, and Longstreet's Army-saving flanking attack at the Wilderness Campaign.